Hello again, everyone. Welcome into Moving Up the Ladder. Today, we're featuring one of my favorite segments, Myth versus Reality, where we take a look at some common beliefs or phrases out there and decide if they're true or false. To do that today, we're going to speak with Ron Baker, making his much-anticipated return to LJN Radio. Ron is a radio host of the show The Soul of Enterprise. He's also an author of six best-selling books, as well as the founder of Verisage Institute, and he's joining us today to talk about some business myth versus realities. Ron, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thank you, Tim. Glad to be here. And as I mentioned, you know, we're doing this new kind of segment, myth versus reality, trying to pick apart the truth from the fiction uh, that you hear out there, whether it be for job seekers, employers, maybe even some business beliefs. And uh, I knew you were the right guy to come on and give us the, the straight truth here. So uh, I guess let's just jump into it and we'll see what you got for us. The first one that you had brought up to me was the idea that what you can measure, you can manage. What are your thoughts on that one? Yeah, this is a huge myth. In fact, I wrote an entire book to refute this myth because I used to believe it with every fiber of my body. And we hear this a lot in the conventional mm -hmm. wisdom that what you can measure, you can manage. And most people ascribe this to Peter Drucker, the father of modern management. And he never wrote it. He never said it. And more importantly, he didn't <laughs> believe it. It really comes from the founder of the McKinsey firm. And it's known as the McKinsey maxim. And the reason it's a myth, Tim, is we don't change our weight by weighing ourselves more frequently. Oh, I, <laughs> I like mean, that. I wish we could, <laughs> right. you know, but just because you measure something either more accurately or more frequently doesn't mean that you're going to be able to, to manage it, let alone change it. What you have to do is change the process, right? If you want to become a better golfer, you're going to have to change your swing, balance and weight distribution and all that type of thing. So right. this whole idea that, you know, just because we can measure it, we can manage it, I think is, is really a, an enormous myth. And I think the other way it's manifested in business is companies tend to think, well, if we measure more things, we'll get more done. And this is why you see something like, you know, sometimes the balanced scorecard will have something like a thousand KPIs or a hundred KPIs right. track. <laughs> this is insane. I mean, a hundred <laughs> equals zero, I promise you, because our minds can only track, you know, three or four or five things at most. So I think this is an enormous myth in the business world. And it's actually quite dangerous to believe this. I find it intriguing that you fully admitted that you did believe this for the longest time. Was there something specifically that knocked you out of this belief or was there, was it a gradual thing? I mean, take us through your mindset a little bit. Yeah, it was a gradual thing. I mean, it was just from studying, you know, business in general and this whole fixation with measurement. But it was also just, you know, I'm, I'm an accountant by, by education. And I realized that a lot of measures are not that accurate. Mm -hmm. And I guess, you know, one of the things that really stunned me was back in the days when the East and West Germany were still divided, the, the CIA and a whole bunch of other governmental agencies took the biggest statistical undertaking in, in history and concluded that East Germany had the same GDP per person as West Germany. Huh. Now, these were really smart people, but as any right. taxi cab driver can, <laughs> could have told you going through Checkpoint Charlie that the East was inferior to the West, and yet statistics and measurements, especially when they're done by experts and especially when they're put out precisely with, with like two decimal places, they give us the illusion of accuracy and the illusion of knowledge. And I think that's really scary. And there's, and, and it, just, it, it dawned on me gradually, but it finally did dawn on me that, you know, measures crowd out intuition and judgment. And that's what's dangerous about them. And you've talked about that before when I've had you on the show, just the idea of 
it sort of gives you this false sense of comfort in that, oh, well, you can see it here. You don't have to believe in something. You don't have to go off of your experiences. And obviously, in today's world, there are so many numbers and there's data. And no matter where you look, that's a big focus. What are your overall concerns with that movement and that push to make sure that we have all this data? Yeah, the big data movement, I think, is kind of scary because, you know, data is, is, is by definition about the past. So it can't say anything. It's kind of like accounting, right? An accountant can audit the drunk's bar bill, but he can't tell you why he's an alcoholic. And what scares me about big data is, is because it's about the past, it can't account for creativity hmm. and dreaming and innovation sure. and things like that because we, have data, we, we don't have any data on anything new. You know, 15 years ago, we didn't think we'd be Googling anything. And so I think trying to run a dynamic, innovative economy based on data, it, it's, like, it's kind of like painting art by the numbers. I mean, you can do it, you can do it efficiently, but it's pretty crappy art. That's a fair point. <laughs> Although my five-year-old might argue that his works are pretty good when he colors by numbers. So, <laughs> But we're talking a little higher level, of course. <laughs> Uh, right, right. Was, was there anything else you wanted to touch on in terms of this idea of measuring what you can manage and the belief that that's a myth? Yeah, just that, uh, you know, this idea that measures crowd out judgment and give us a false sense of knowledge. I mean, if you had, to, if you needed heart surgery and you were the researching doctors and one had an 80% mortality rate, one had a 20%, you know, I ask this question a lot of uh, people and they say, well, I'd pick the one that had a 20% mortality, right? Chance of death. Well, it's like, well, wait a minute, time out. Yeah, I know that I know what the numbers say, but what if the person who picks who had the 80% mortality rate the surgeon picked had harder cases right. and the the one that had with a 20% mortality rate picked all the easy cases and turned away the tough cases. The 80% doctor could be a better surgeon. The point is you don't know until you dig deeper by using intuition and knowledge and judgment and that and that's why I think measures by themselves are dangerous. I think that's a great analogy to finish off that phrasing with as far as the measuring what you can manage and uh, hopefully people can appreciate that. So let's move on to the next one. And that is good ideas are everywhere. It's the execution that matters. I love this one because you hear this a lot. In fact, there's been entire business books written mm. by it on it. And, and it's kind of an old canard, this idea that uh, I think it's a huge myth. Just a couple of examples. If it was true that great ideas or good ideas were everywhere, then we probably wouldn't have remakes of Bewitched and the Dukes of Hazard in movie theaters. But what's really the big problem with this is that there's no good way to implement a bad idea. Hmm. And there's countless examples through history. I mean, Napoleon invading Russia. I don't care how flawless his execution was. Right. That was a strategic blunder. Look at communism. You know, you can look around the world at communism and say, oh, well, just the right people haven't executed it properly. <laughs> no, it's a bad <laughs> idea. I don't care how flawed. The angels couldn't execute communism properly. This is an enormous falsity. And uh, I think the other thing is, you know, it's been proven economically that countries that come up with more ideas have higher standards of living than countries who merely execute them. Hmm. I much rather live in the country that innovated the iPhone and the Boeing 787 Dreamliner than live in the country that merely assembles those products. It's the idea, it's the creation and the invention. It's not so much the execution that matters. So why would you say that many people, and again, it's hard to gauge who believes it and who doesn't, but why would you say people do fall into the trap of believing in these good ideas being everywhere or that, well, I can take any idea and 
and we can make it work. What What's the draw to it or what is the reason this happens? I think there's a certain intuitive appeal to it. It seems to make sense. I mean, right. after all, if you're just sitting there coming up with good ideas, but you don't act on them, sure. <laughs> you know, nothing's ever going to get done. So, but I think in the big picture, when you really look at this at a deep level, and it took me a while to understand this too, this was not an easy thing for me to, to conclude. Uh, it was really coming from studying economics that there is no good way to implement a crappy idea. So the quality of the idea does matter. And when you look at professionals like advertising agencies, you know, they're paid to come up with fantastic ideas, right. whether for a brand campaign or, or whatever. And you realize how, how really far and few between those are, you know, most ideas fail, most ideas are bad. So <laughs> I, I, the, the real value here is in the idea. It's not just, it's not so much the execution. Sure. Well, let's go to another phrase, and it has to do with a subject that I know is near and dear to your heart. We've talked about it uh, a few times on past shows. And the phrase that is used here, effectiveness always and everywhere trumps efficiency. What are your thoughts? <laughs> I actually believe this is a reality. So we started with two myths, but this one is for real. And let me be very specific here. I think there's a, there's a linguistic problem sometimes with this because a lot of people conflate the terms efficiency and effectiveness, but they're completely different things. Right. Efficiency is simply a ratio. It's usually some type of outputs divided by inputs. In other words, it's one of these mindless measurements, right? I, I can prove on average statistically that uh, in the world, everybody has one testicle. Now, mathematically, <laughs> I'm, I'm absolutely correct. Yep. But if I believe that as a sentient human being, I'm an idiot, right? <laughs> Another way that, that measures crowd out judgment and knowledge and intuition. But efficiency is a ratio. Effectiveness, however, is doing the right thing. And the fact is, Tim, that businesses can be efficient at doing the wrong things or you know, doing evil things. I mean, there's nothing more wasteful than doing efficiently what shouldn't be done at all. Hmm. And I guess my exhibit A for being efficient at something that's evil would be the Holocaust. I mean, I hate to bring it up, but the Holocaust was quite efficient. It was incredibly evil, though. It, it certainly wasn't the definition of effectiveness doing the right thing. So in a business context, businesses aren't paid to be efficient. They're paid to create wealth. The buggy whips were models of efficiency. In fact, they were probably at the apogee of their efficiency, the buggy whip manufacturers, but the combustion engine took them down <laughs> because it right. offered better value to the customer. So just because you're efficient at doing something doesn't guarantee anything. It's not a competitive advantage. Your competition can match your efficiency. They can invest in the same software, computer systems, technology that you can. It's effectiveness really that trumps efficiency because effectiveness is what a competitive advantage is built on. So you alluded to it partially there, the idea that, the, again, measuring data and numbers does play a role in this idea of efficiency because you can, quote unquote, see it when you talk about that input output. But what else lends efficiency to being what people seem to want more so than what you always preach in the idea of effectiveness? Yeah, I think it's because we kind of have a materialist view of the world that, you know, that businesses are like a big clock or, you know, something that we can manipulate. And the fact is that, yes, we can be efficient with things. I mean, I'm not anti-efficiency. I'm not, I'm not arguing that we go back to slide rules and, right. you know, typewriters with carbon paper. We can be efficient with things. Airplanes can be more efficient. Cars can become more efficient from an output-input ratio. But the fact of the matter is you can't be efficient with people. I mean, I, I don't know what it means to have an efficient marriage, but it, it's, it kind of scares me, even the thought of it. 
And the fact of the matter is relationships between us humans are based on effectiveness. I mean, just a few examples here, but you know, if you go into a Ritz-Carlton and you ask the front desk you know, where this ballroom is, they'll escort you to it. They won't just show you a map that you can't read and draw pictures about where you are and where the ball. They'll actually escort you there. And that's not very efficient. It is, however, highly effective. Right. Nordstrom puts piano players in its stores. Well, that's not very efficient, right? <laughs> it certainly doesn't increase sales per square foot and profit per square foot. It does, however, create a beautiful atmosphere, not only for the customers, but their team members. Because, I mean, how many bosses serenade their employees every day? So, you know, we as humans love effectiveness. This is why we build Golden Gate Bridge and Sydney Harbor Bridge. We could put up a military bridge. It would be far more efficient, but it wouldn't be nearly as aesthetically beautiful and it wouldn't please our souls. So I, I think this is one of the reasons why you have to think about effectiveness and doing the right thing. Better yet, think of efficaciousness. You know, that is creating the maximum desired effect. Right. And that's really what businesses are paid to do in terms of creating that maximum value. You know, and I love that you differentiate the idea there between, you know, things and people. And at least what I get from what you've brought up here that we should focus a little more on the human element versus worrying about the things and the numbers. Absolutely. I mean, businesses is about relationships at the end of the day. I mean, I think, I think a lot of businesses, I mean, I, I, I know there are exceptions to that. I mean, I don't have a relationship with anybody at Amazon. I've never met anybody at Amazon mm -hmm. and I bought quite a bit from Amazon, but you know, that's because they secure me and make me feel good in other ways. I do think we need to focus on the human element and th that's what scares me about some of this, some of these myths, you know, like what you can measure, you can manage and big data. They take the humanness out of it, and that bothers me. Let's go to the next myth or reality here. And just the phrasing sounds like a little bit more numbers-based, but we'll see what your take is on it. Increased market share leads to increased profits. Seems to make sense. Yeah, no, this one is, <laughs> this one is very much in the conventional wisdom. As I've learned, the conventional wisdom is much more conventional than actual wisdom. <laughs> this is an enormous myth. This is an enormous myth. It's actually kind of the fool's gold of the business world, oh, the like pursuit that. of market share. You know, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. It's not the ideology of a, of a profitable, long-term, sustainable business. You know, the old saying that revenue is vanity and, and profit is sanity. How many companies have you watched grow themselves into bankruptcy? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it happens all the time. Right. And, you know, if you look at companies that don't have the highest market share in their respective industries, the, the top performers over 70% of the time will not have, and I'm talking about top performance in terms of profit or return on capital, they won't have the highest market share. Exhibit A would be BMW and Porsche. Here's two of the most profitable car companies in the world, bar none, and they have minuscule market shares. Hmm. Certainly don't have the market share of a GM or a Toyota. And my favorite example, of course, is Apple. Apple's never cared about market share. Never. They've never had more than 10% of the computer market. Their market share is dwarfed in, in iPhones by Android and other platforms. And yet they have a commanding share of the industry's profits. <laughs> and so, yeah, they don't pursue market share, right. but they do pursue profit fairly well. <laughs> I'd rather be the profit leader rather than the market share leader. I've coined this law, Baker's Law, that bad customers drive out good customers. And the fact of the matter is market share is a result of a good value proposition. It's not the cause. Hmm. Do you think this is just something that's carried over from 
100 years ago that has transitioned into being a myth, so to speak? Or I don't know, what is the disconnect that people still want to believe in this idea? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I don't even think it's 100 years old. It actually goes back to some studies in the 60s. Uh, They were called PIMS, studies that uh, business schools were doing. Okay. It saw correlation between market share and profitability, but correlation is not causation, right? Wet streets don't cause rain. And in 1975, actually, a Harvard Business Review article came out and said the key to profitability is market share. And so it, it just, it became part of the zeitgeist in the business world. And it's an enormously dangerous myth. And it's just been refuted by so much empirical evidence that I have no idea why it continues to persist. Well, Ron, unfortunately, we are up against the clock here, uh, so I did want to cut us off there. We'll definitely get together again and and hit on some more of these myth versus reality, but a pleasure having you on as always. You bring us some great stories, some great analogies, and uh, I love having you on the show to give our listeners your knowledge. Anytime, Tim. Thank you so much. With that, we'll close out this edition of Myth versus Reality here on Moving Up the Ladder. Once again, we were happy to be joined by Ron Baker. He is the founder of Verisage Institute and an author of six best-selling books. You can also hear more from him checking out his radio show, of which he's the host, The Soul of Enterprise. So I would suggest finding him online as well. If you'd like to get in touch with us here at LJN Radio, you can shoot us an email. That's ljnradio at localjobnetwork.com. You can also connect with us on Twitter, at the LJN. And we do encourage you to check out our shows on iTunes as well. Just search LJN Radio. For everyone here at the Local Job Network, I'm your host, Tim Muma. Take care, everybody.